Good morning, and thank you for joining me on today's edition of Understanding the Law. I'm your host, Peter Lamont, and I'm a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast where we discuss a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we thank you for joining us, and we welcome calls from our listeners. If you would like to discuss any of today's topics, or if you have a separate legal question or issue that you'd like to discuss, we encourage you to give us a call at 347-855-8831. That'll take you into our switchboards, and we'll be able to uh, answer your questions live on the air. So today... I'm going to start off with a question that um, we see quite frequently from clients and people interested in retaining a lawyer. The question is, how does a lawyer decide if my case is good and what constitutes a good case? So it's it's something that we talk about all the time. You'll be at a, a party and somebody will say, oh, that would make a great lawsuit, that would make a great case. And it sounds like it might, but there's a lot more that goes into play than just um, analyzing whether or not somebody was wronged in a particular circumstance and being able to decide whether or not it was a good case. So when you hear those, those comments at uh, parties and at the dinner table, I'm hoping that what we can do today is enlighten you a little bit, give you some additional information so that you'll be able to analyze a little bit better whether or not those statements are actually true. So let's take it step by step. There are two components to every lawsuit, and it does not matter whether it's a lawsuit that is a breach of contract claim or a personal injury claim. There has to be essentially two components. The first component is liability. The second component is damages. These two components must both be present in order for a lawsuit to be considered good. So let's take a step back and let's look at liability first. What is liability? Well, liability is essentially being able to prove that somebody's action or inaction caused you to suffer some sort of issue. Let's just say issue for right now. Um, Ultimately, it's did it cause you damage, but I want to break it down and keep it separate. So liability is who is at fault? Who is responsible for doing this thing to you? Let's look at it in a uh, slip and fall context. So if you are walking down the street in front of a commercial business, let's, let's say it's a, a restaurant, a strip mall, and there's snow or ice that had accumulated in front of that restaurant, and you slip and fall, somebody is responsible for you slipping and falling. And the question is, is it the restaurant or is it the mall owner or is it you? Determining who is at fault, who is liable for the accident, whose actions or inactions cause this event to occur is the first step. 
The second step is to determine whether or not that liability created damages. So in the same example of the slip and fall, if the restaurant owner had failed to properly shovel or to put uh, rock salt or sand down to keep the area safe, and you slipped and fell, and you smacked your head on the pavement and gave yourself a concussion or a fractured skull, you now have tangible damages, something that's, that's able to be calculated. You can put a dollar value on it. You have sustained a physical damage to your body. There's pain and suffering that goes along with that, as well as um, you know, a loss of income, and other damages that arise out of that. Now, you need to have both liability and damages to have a good claim. So let's take our slip and fall example and let's remove liability. You're walking down the street, you slip and fall, and you crack your head open, and you need to have two surgeries, significant amount of medical expenses, lost income because you can't go to work. You have some se severe damages. But when you analyze your case, you realize that you weren't paying attention to where you were going and you tripped over your own feet or you walked into a sign or you walked off a curb. There's no liability on the owner of either that strip mall or that restaurant. And so even though you have these significant damages, you're not going to be able to pin liability on somebody. So you don't have a case there. There's nobody that you can sue. Now, conversely, what happens if you're walking down the, the same street and that restaurant owner is a bad guy? He's throwing his oil and cooking products out the, the front of his door and it's, uh, it's landing on the sidewalk and freezing bad guy. As a matter of fact, he thinks to himself, wouldn't it be funny if somebody slipped and fell? And you're walking down the street, and sure enough, you slip and fall. So he's in the back laughing hysterically because this is what he was hoping for. You fall, but you're wearing a very heavy winter jacket, and you don't hit your head. You just fall. You don't have any injuries. Maybe you're embarrassed. Maybe you're a little sore, but there's really no injury. So that means no damages. So even though you may want to sue this guy because he's standing there laughing at you, pointing his spatula at you while you're trying to get up off the, off the ground, you don't have any damages. So you're not going to be able to sue. So when an attorney looks at a claim, even though you may think it is a very good case, an attorney looks at it to analyze, A, is there liability? Is there somebody that we can blame for this? And B, can we establish damages? If those two things aren't present, an attorney is not going to take the case. And oftentimes we have people that can't understand why are you not interested in this case? You know, what they've done to me is so wrong, what this company's done to me. Uh, we see this a lot of times in um, maybe online cases where we'll have a client come in and, and say that, they had signed up for uh, a free coupon or they signed up for a free listing and they didn't get what they thought. 
but they didn't lose any money. They didn't really lose any time. And so in theory, yeah, you might have liability because the company that promised to either put your listing up or give you the coupon didn't. Your damages are just not there. You can't establish them, and therefore, it's not a good case. Now, another issue that comes up is what happens when you go to an attorney and you have a case, you know there's liability, and there are damages, but the damages are really small. $5, $6. What then? And this happens all the time because you'll have a client who's very upset because they've been wronged, and rightfully so. They'll come in and they'll want an attorney to take a case on a contingency basis, meaning that they don't pay for the attorney's services. They allow the attorney to get a percentage of whatever recovery is, uh, is made from the lawsuit. And they're surprised when the attorney says, we are not going to take this on a contingency basis. The question is, well, why? I have a good case. Well, you have a good case as far as liability goes. But on the damages end, what do you gain from this lawsuit? And if it's a negligible amount, it's not worth your time as the client to answer interrogatories, to complete discovery. And it certainly is not worth your attorney's time because they're never going to recoup any money. So if they're working on a percentage arrangement and it's a a 33% of your recovery, 33% of $5 is not a lot of money. So that's why you're going to get an attorney who's going to say, we can't help you on a contingency basis unless you know you are interested in paying hourly and then again it doesn't make sense for you because your damages are going to be far overshadowed by the amount of money that you pay in attorney's fees so the answer to the question you know how does an attorney determine whether it's a good case is that they look at all of the facets of the case which is why quite honestly when clients call an attorney's office and they say, can you give me an analysis of my case? It's not always easy for the attorney to be able to give you that overview without first learning some additional information. Because what seems clear to you as the, the victim, the injured party, is not always clear in the eyes of the law. For example, sticking with our slip and fall, Landlords in New Jersey have a non-delegable duty to maintain the premises in a safe manner. So what does that mean? That means that they can't say to a third party, you're responsible for taking care of this, and if you don't, uh, I'm off the hook because it's all on you. So if you fall in front of a commercial property, somebody with insurance or enough money to cover the claim is going to be on the hook. They're going to be responsible. But if you compare that to the duty of a homeowner who you're walking down uh, the street and you slip and fall on, on some ice in front of their house, homeowners don't have that duty of care to maintain sidewalks in a safe condition the same way that a commercial landowner has. And so that fact is important for an attorney to discover when discussing the case with you because they'll know, well, 
we have an issue here because there there is no duty of care. So you may not have a good case because liability might be an issue. Now, establishing and analyzing liability can be difficult. And we get this, this emotional surge when something happens to us and we feel wronged and we know that somebody is, is to blame for it. And we just have this desire to say they're at fault. And, you know, you're right. They might be at fault. But can you take that fault and translate it into an actionable lawsuit? Can you actually create liability out of the bad act? And then separately, can you establish the damages that need to be tied into the liability? So it's not something that the average person can analyze themselves. Do I have a case? It's really something that you need to discuss with an attorney. And then when you do bring it to the attorney's attention, you must understand that you need to provide all of the facts so that an attorney can analyze both damages and liability and then determine whether or not you have a, you know, quote unquote, good case. So that's, that's the, the trick, if you will to determining whether or not a case is good. And there are a lot of different factors that go into liability that we're not going to get into right now, um, such as you know, a negligence claim, the elements of negligence and things like that. And we can discuss that at a later uh, date. And I'm sure we'll have some uh, social media questions concerning this topic. So we'll try to respond to those questions at another time. But suffice it to say, Attorneys look to see if there are damages and liability. There need to be both in order for your case to be good. The extent of the damages need to be sufficient in order to warrant the attorney spending his time on the matter. And more importantly, for you, whether or not it's worth it for you, for your time. So if you have a question about whether or not a case is good, contact a lawyer and ask them, give them the facts and let them analyze it for you, and then you can make your decision as to how you want to proceed. All right, so I want to move into uh, the next topic, which is something that occurred very recently in a local New Jersey town, and it was a, uh, an accident with a bus, a school bus, filled with school children, and the cause of the accident was the driver, it was at an intersection, the driver of the vehicle who had a stop sign did not come to a complete stop. And they rolled through the stop sign and ended up colliding with the bus. Now, fortunately, there were no fatalities, and, and you know, that's, that's thankful. But what I want to discuss today is something that we as drivers just take for granted. You know, we see a stop sign and everybody's in a rush. And your primary concern, for the most part, with stop signs is that there's not a, a cop around that's going to give you a ticket for failing to stop. And, you know, that's true. I mean, in, in towns like Patterson, um, they set up these areas where the police are looking to see if you're stopping at stop signs. And it happens not just in New Jersey, but across the country. But they're few and far between. It's not something that happens on, on even a monthly basis. So people seem to neglect the fact that 
the reason for a stop sign, which has been you know, put there by your Department of Transportation, the National Highway Traffic Safety Board. I mean, that, these are federal and state laws. The stop signs are there for a reason. They want you to stop and make sure that the intersection is clear. And this may seem very rudimentary, very going back to taking your driver's tests in high school, but it's really important because we're in a very busy world. We're in a rushed society. Everyone is looking for that instantaneous result or gratification. You know, it used to be that if you wanted to watch a movie, you had to go to the video store. You had to peruse what they had there, check it out, take it home, watch it, and return it. Now, you go on something like iTunes or Hulu and you download a movie instantaneously. And they're even out on iTunes before they are available to purchase in the store. So that's the culture that we're in right now. And our children, as they grow up, they don't want to wait for anything, including a stop sign. Now, in this case, the driver of the vehicle admitted that they did not stop completely and and rolled through the, the sign. Now, with respect to your vehicle and traffic laws, you'll get a ticket if a police officer sees you failing to stop. It's not an astronomical fee in most states. But more importantly, your failure to stop at a stop sign can injure somebody, a bicyclist, a kid on a skateboard, a school bus filled with children. So the same way that you stop at a red light, because you know that if you go through a red light, there's a good chance you're going to get a ticket. Many of our intersections controlled by stoplights now have uh, cameras on them. So people are a little more wary, a little more cognizant of the stoplight and making sure that they stop. But with stop signs, that just doesn't seem to happen. I mean, if you look at the next intersection where you see a stop sign and you look at how many people, count how many people actually come to a complete stop at the stop sign, I think you'll be surprised because I would venture to say that it's less than 50% of the people. So it's really important for the safety of other drivers and in particular children who are not always paying attention. Kids walking home from school and with Halloween coming up and trick-or-treaters, it's even more important that you just understand it's not so much the fine that you're going to get. It's not so much the, the ticket that you're going to receive. It's the impact that you may have on somebody else's life and their safety. The split second or two that you save by rolling through a stop sign and not coming to a complete stop could have a monumental impact on a pedestrian or other passenger's life. And that's something that you've got to live with that is far more devastating than any municipal fine or ticket, traffic ticket that you receive. And the reason that, that this is something I'm discussing is because of this recent accident. Um, you know, the, the police determined that the driver executed, they call it a California stop, which is a rolling stop. And that, that's negligence. It's negligence of the driver. So this recent case, and then there was a prior case that happened in September 
where it created a fatality. These cases are very frequent and very important. And it's not, again, for you to protect yourself from getting a ticket. It's from you to prevent injuries to somebody else. Now, on a more selfish note concerning that, if you do injure somebody or, God forbid, kill them, you have an insurance policy. The typical policy, typical policy, has limits of 100000 per incident. So that means that you are insured up to $100,000. But if you seriously injure someone, paralyze them, you know, let's say it's a kid that's riding a skateboard and you're rolling through the stop sign and you paralyze this child, your $100,000 coverage is not going to be sufficient to satisfy whatever judgment or jury award the child, uh, through his guardians, obtain. And what does that mean to you? Well, that means that they're, the plaintiff is going to be able to come after you individually beyond your insurance coverage for whatever balance remains on the judgment or jury award. This happens all the time. And so even if you have no thought about the other people that are out there and their safety, even if you don't really think what I'm saying is something that you should focus on concerning stopping at a stop sign, think about the impact that it could have on you because if you paralyze someone or kill someone or seriously injure someone, the likelihood that a jury award will exceed your policy limits is relatively high. On a paralysis case, these jury awards can range anywhere from 200000 into the millions. And if your insurance coverage isn't sufficient to cover that claim, you your personal assets, your house, your car, all of the things that you worked so hard to obtain could be in jeopardy. And the other interesting factor is a lot of people will say, well, I'll just declare bankruptcy. Many states have rules that prevent pain and suffering awards in negligence lawsuits from being discharged through the bankruptcy courts. So keep that in mind, and please make sure that you're cognizant of bringing your vehicle to a full stop, especially now with Halloween coming up. If you have any questions about this or you'd like to share a story um, or you know somebody that has been injured as a result of a California stop, give us a call at 347-855-8831. I'd like to hear what you have to uh, to say, and it might help our other listeners experience it more from, from a, an actual um, experience standpoint. All right. I want to move into our, our legal news update. First thing I want to talk about is uh, the update on the same-sex marriage decision in New Jersey. And if you recall, a few weeks ago, a New Jersey state court judge had ruled that uh, gay couples should have the right to marry. And, of course, Governor Christie has opposed this. It's been his position all along. Now, as we talked about a few weeks ago, we expected that the governor would file papers requesting a stay 
of the October deadline that was originally set, and that, in fact, did occur. And so the governor filed a motion to stay on October, well, it was filed before October 10th, but it was heard on October 10th. And at the state court level, the judge denied the motion. So a stay essentially means that you are going to put the case or the lawsuit on hold until time has passed and something happens. You know, for example, in a bankruptcy case, a stay is put into place that prevents your creditors from coming after you or seeking a judgment or foreclosure while your bankruptcy proceeding is pending. So in this case, the governor wanted it to stay so that the ruling that permitted gay couples to marry was put on hold until he had ample time to oppose it. And so on October 10th, the state court judge denied that motion for a stay, and the, the governor appealed that ruling. And um, it right now is sitting with the New Jersey Supreme Court. They took the uh, jurisdiction over the matter, and the stay is, is pending. Um, a lot of the same-sex marriage advocates have opposed the stay, and they've filed opposition and, and additional motions, and they're making arguments uh, that say if the stay is put in place, that they will be irreparably harmed. And so right now it's, it's floating around in the Supreme Court level, and we'll see what happens very soon. But what's interesting are some of the arguments that the gay rights advocates are, are putting forth. I think that the overall population, uh, be it heterosexual or homosexual, believe that uh, the right to marry is a, a personal issue. It's a personal right. But what's interesting is that there is this legal element to it that what a lot of the gay advocates are, are fighting for is equality, not just in, in the sacrament or experience of marriage, the tradition of marriage, but for the rights to obtain various insurance coverages, to have the rights under the Family Medical Leave Act, um, that's really, I think, at the heart of this debate because couples seeking to be married, I think, are looking at this more deeply than just, you know, we can legally say we're married. I think that for the most part, people are thinking about their own rights because uh, how is it fair in their minds uh, that a heterosexual couple can be covered under the Family Medical Leave Act, for example, or obtain certain Medicare benefits that um, same-sex couples cannot. And so this is something that I think that we often forget this legal element, the legal ramifications of uh, same-sex marriage and what really those in support of, of uh, same-sex marriage are looking to accomplish. It is more than just being able to say we're married. It has to do with a significant number of benefits, governmental, federal, state benefits that are provided to heterosexual couples that are not provided currently to homosexual couples. And it'll be interesting to see 
how this plays out. But as we mentioned once before, I think that this is now the final battle in the state of New Jersey, and that in the very near future, we're going to have um, a ruling. And I, I would suggest that this will continue on for a number of weeks. But ultimately, I, I think that the trend in, uh, in the country is going to be moving towards the acceptance of same-sex marriage and will allow same-sex couples to have those rights and benefits under the federal and state laws and insurance laws. So we'll keep you updated on that. Um, now getting into some of our other news stories, uh, this ties in also with our weekly uh, jury verdict analysis. I want to talk about two cases that are, are very interesting. The first one deals with wrongful termination of an openly gay athletic director in a New Jersey school. Uh, this occurred down in Monmouth County and involved the Homedale Board of Education. Now, the claim was that the athletic director, who happened to be gay, had made some claims of discriminatory behavior that had begun all the way back in 2005. Um, she claimed basically that some of the teachers and the staff who knew she was gay used slurs and defamatory comments about her to her, to students, and that she had made numerous complaints to the Board of Education and asked for some assistance and ultimately, um, this continued. The board did very little to help her. She ended up filing a complaint with the State Division on Civil Rights, but that agency didn't pursue it, and it's not because the agency didn't think that she was being wrong, but this was more of a, a civil matter that they weren't going to get involved with. And so uh, it took her until August of 2008 to file a lawsuit in the Monmouth County Superior Court, and she was able to establish that her termination was unfair, it was discriminatory, it violated New Jersey's law against discrimination, that she was an exemplary employee, that she had a very clean record with respect to her employee file, and she hadn't been written up for any disciplinary action, and was able to essentially establish to the satisfaction of a jury that the reason she was fired was purely due to her being gay and that uh, you know, they did nothing to help her when she made her numerous complaints. Now, she was awarded $800,000, which is a huge award. because of the discrimination, the creation of a hostile work environment, and the retaliation. So that's a pretty hefty award, and it's something that we should be aware of with respect to how businesses and school boards, because, you know, school board acts somewhat like a business. It's important to know how to handle complaints that you receive. It doesn't necessarily need to be just from gay employees. It can be from anybody. 
The lesson to take away from this case is that had the school district properly addressed her complaints, perhaps called a meeting, perhaps sent out a memo, had discussions with the individuals who were alleged to have made the comments, perhaps it would have stopped, or if it hadn't stopped, there, was, there is a good chance that this $800,000 jury award would have been much less because they would have been able to show that we made attempts to resolve the issues. We did not neglect her concerns or complaints. We took them seriously. We acted on them. And at some point, we don't have the control over individuals who are going to engage in malicious activity behind our backs. You know, maybe they would have suspended someone, but that would have been sufficient to establish that they did attempt to resolve the issue or at least address it. And so even if a jury had awarded them or awarded the plaintiffs some money, it would not have been $800,000. To a school board, it's not going to seem like that big a hit because most school boards are insured either through joint insurance funds, which uh, involve a number of towns pooling their money together and and being insured jointly through one company, or the town is self-insured. Those that are self-insured obviously will feel a hit if they get a judgment or verdict of $800,000. That's going to impact the ability to pay for schooling, for textbooks, for teachers, for programs for the kids. But take it out of the school board context and put it into a business context, what if you are a small to medium-sized business owner and you have an employee that makes a complaint? And again, it does not matter if the employee is gay or straight or black or white or, or whatever. If you have an employee who complains about something, you need to take that seriously because small to mid-sized companies cannot sustain a jury award of $800,000. Businesses are not going to have insurance that cover retaliation, discrimination, or the creation of a hostile work environment. That is enough to send a small to mid-sized business out of business, all because you failed to take the complaints of an, an employee seriously. You don't have to solve the problem per se, because sometimes there's no solution. But you need to do something. You need to investigate. You need to take steps to try to resolve the issue, to perhaps mediate the issue, to bring the parties together, or to reprimand parties who you know have been engaging in improper action. This is not something that you can just sweep under the rug because it will come back and it will bite you and it will bite you big. So this verdict is important. It's not important per se because it, it, it shows how you know, we're supporting um, gay rights or we're supporting uh, proper etiquette in, in, in the school district. This shows is that if you fail to address employee complaints, you could be liable for the creation of a hostile work environment or for allowing violations of the law against discrimination. 
That's the takeaway that I want you to have from this case. And if you have questions or concerns about how you in your organization are handling complaints, how to structure an employee handbook, how to structure a policy that allows for employees to report to someone else other than you if you're a small business owner about discriminatory behavior. You should give us a call. Um, the office number is 973-949-3770. And we'd be happy to give you some information as to how you deal with employees, how you structure your policies and procedures to prevent what has happened in Monmouth County. All right, moving along, I want to talk about a class action suit against the um, fitness chain, LA Fitness. Now, this case was filed in federal court in New Jersey, and it essentially alleged that LA Fitness has a contract uh, that requires customers to renew memberships for more than three years. Uh, it impedes cancellations and it violated the Health Club Services Act and they alleged consumer fraud violations as well. This case resolved and it settled for $3.8 million. That included a $200,000 attorney's fee for the attorneys who handled the class action. $11,065 in damages and then a $3,000 incentive award to the class representative. Um, essentially, those members of the class, it was broken down into uh, two different levels. The first level, and you had to hit a certain criteria, meet a certain criteria, they are going to receive a 45-day pass and can request a payment equal to one-third of a month's due, dues. Uh, and the second class will receive two free 25-minute personal training sessions or a $100 credit towards membership. What's interesting here is the actual legal violations. The health club failed to comply with terms and conditions in the New Jersey Consumer Fraud Act. Uh, they also, and this is very interesting, they also violated the Truth in Consumer Contract and War Warranty and Notice Act, which ties into the Consumer Fraud Act and can establish treble damages and the recovery of attorney's fees. Now, LA Fitness is not based out of uh, New Jersey. They have chains all over the country. And this sort of highlights the idea that businesses who have franchises or, or chains in other parts of the country, you need to retain counsel to help you establish proper criteria and um, registration, licensing for the activities that you're going to engage in in another state. You need to be aware of the Consumer Fraud Act in whatever state you're going to be doing business in 
You need to be aware of you know, state-specific laws like the Health Club Services Act in New Jersey. You can't just establish a number of franchises throughout the country or a number of, of different um, entities or businesses throughout the country without understanding what the laws are in those specific states. So this, to me, seems to be a clear-cut example of how failure to be aware of New Jersey law and the requirements of the Consumer Fraud Act cost LA Fitness $3.8 million. This is a contract dispute. The contract that LA Fitness provided, I guarantee you, was reviewed by a number of attorneys, but apparently not by an attorney in New Jersey or not by a competent attorney in New Jersey because the contract was a clear violation of the law, and then they're hit with this $3.8 million settlement. Now, I don't think it's going to force LA Fitness out of business, uh, but it certainly does highlight the need to properly address contracts in the states that you're going to be operating in if you're a business. Now, from the consumer standpoint, if you go back to the numbers that I, I listed, of the $3.8 million, members of the class, so they're either going to get a $100 credit or a 45-day free pass. It doesn't really sound like all that, that much for a class member, but that's how class actions work. The $3.8 million was divvied up amongst all of the members of the class. I am sure that in the course of, of your life, you've received a notice in the mail, uh, a legal form that says this is to notify you that you're a member of, of a class. Perhaps you know, Sears recently had one sent out, AT&T. And you know, if you want to opt into the class, do nothing. There's a lot of small print, a lot of legal mumbo-jumbo. Most people look at them, realize they don't have to do anything, and throw them out. And a few months later, you get a coupon for $2 for your next purchase at Sears. I think that there's a uh, misconception with class action lawsuits. We actually get a lot of people who call up and inquire about class action lawsuits, and they're under the impression that they themselves are going to walk away with a significant amount of money in the event that we can prove the case. Recently, we, we had a uh, string of clients come in against this company, Author House, and they're a book publishing. It's one of these print-on-demand publishers. And uh, there were issues with their level of service and the contract and uh, revenue that they were paying out to the authors. And a lot of the people who, who called and inquired about filing a suit were spouting off damages that, that they believed they incurred, some to the tune of $17,000. And their hope was that in a class action, they would be able to recover that money. And the answer to that was, no, you can't. Because a class action, there are, are very strict requirements for a class action to occur. Um, there needs to be the right number of people. There needs to be very similar circumstances. And, and four elements that have to be met. But everybody has to have been wronged in the same or very similar manner. And so long story short, this author house 
these inquiries. They were not proper, in my opinion, for a class action. But what was interesting was the amount of people asking how they're going to recover their money. And the advice to them was, file your own lawsuit. File a civil lawsuit against the company and try to recoup your money. But I think everybody's under the illusion that class actions are powerful and they produce a tremendous amount of money. And I'm going to be honest with you. They produce a tremendous amount of money for the attorneys handling the class action. The attorney's fees here were $200,000. Now, I don't know how long this case was, um, was pending. And I don't know how many attorneys were involved in the case. But attorneys are able, at the conclusion of a class action, to submit to the court a summary of their, their fees, and they get paid based upon a variety of calculations for their time and the impact that they had with the fact that they brought the case and um, we're assisting other people. So the point is, is that you're not going to strike it rich with a class action, and it's important to understand that. Now, the next topic I want to get into is some of the verdict searches um, that have come down in the last week or so. But before we do that, I want to just check the switchboard. I think we might have a call. Hello? Hi. Uh, I came in um, when you were talking about harassment and uh, discrimination. Uh, now, what if you're dealing with a big corporation, and are you just uh, talking about uh, the state that you're in, or are you just generalizing? Well, what's your name? Hello, hello. Hi, how are you? Thank you for calling in. Uh, I'm talking um, in general. There's a body of federal law that's going to protect all employees, but then within your individual state, you're going to have state law that's very similar to what I'm discussing. I'm talking about the case we were talking about, the uh, law against discrimination in New Jersey, but that law is based off of the federal laws, and just about every state has a similar law. So it will apply basically to any jurisdiction. Okay. Now, you mentioned something about a, a larger company. Do you have a question about that? Well, I, I mean, I've been in a turmoil, and uh, actually it was, you know, I don't even know how to say it, but... Um, I, I was suspended, and then when I was suspended, and somehow I ended up on leave of absence. Okay. From what they and they're saying that I'm on leave of absence, and then uh, I, don't, I don't, I don't know, I don't really want to go through the whole thing, but it's a twist there. But I was not paid for the seven months that I had been out on this leave. And okay. Or on suspension, and I say it was a suspension because I have documentation to, uh, you know, support this claim. And I don't know what they're talking about, but I have been strong-armed from every direction 
uh, and it's just really hurting me mentally, emotionally, financially. I mean, for me to have not been paid, and then they were investigating it, and EEOC was investigating it, and, and, and nobody, they came up with nothing, told me nothing. All I know is that I was terminated, and terminated in the midst of all of this being investigated. Then EEO said they didn't have particular documentation that I turned in, which was an which was an untrue. So it's like they're hiding or they're collaborating and they're sabotaging everything, and it's causing me a lot of problems. Let me let me let me interrupt you because. Something that you just raised is important. You know, you mentioned the EEOC, which is obviously a federal administrative agency that looks into claims and they make a determination. But the EEOC, when they investigate a claim and they can't make a determination in your favor, they are obligated to provide you with a right to sue letter. So they conclude their investigation. And if they can't find sufficient evidence to support your claim and to essentially side with you and help you, they then give you the ability to file a private right of action. So right. I understand that. I understand you, all of that, but that, that's not what they did. What they did, when I went back to add on determination, uh, they wouldn't, excuse me, if I began to study because I it this uh, has impacted my speech when I talk about this. But uh, what has happened is that EO uh, claimed that they didn't have the suspension letter, so therefore I couldn't file determination uh, away after this had happened. And that disturbed me, even though it, I left very confused, but I knew what I went in there to do. Uh, and they didn't want to even, when she was making my claim, she didn't want to put paid suspension in there. She even said, I don't need to put the paid in there. I said, but that's, that's how I'm going to get my money. So, therefore, she didn't want to even write it up. It just disturbed me, so I went out of there uh, very confused and very upset because I knew what I was talking about. I knew what right. had happened. I had the documentation to prove it, and I gave it to her, and she still was trying to turn it around. And so it right. just happened, you know. Have you spoken to a private lawyer? And the problem with that, it's like almost nobody here in this state want to come up against uh, this big corporation. Uh, well, you, so, you, you have to keep looking because yes. uh, most states in their employment 
statutes, employment law cases provide for the recovery of attorney's fees so that an attorney would take the case huh? on a contingency basis because huh? if they prove that you have been discriminated against, they're going huh? to get paid per the statute from the company. So, you know, I want to just encourage you, do not give up. You might have to call 50 lawyers. You might have to look on websites like AVO, which is A-V-V-O.com, and it has a uh, find a lawyer tool. Uh, you should continue to search. Do not give up because if you believe you have a valid claim, and yes. you need to speak with an attorney and you need to get somebody that can help you, and you will find somebody who will not be afraid to go up against a large company. Uh, I'd like to thank you for calling in. If you have any additional questions, I'm going to provide my email address at the end of the show, uh, and then that way you could uh, contact me directly. So thank you again for calling in. Okay, thank you. Okay, and uh, we have about five minutes left, so I'd like to thank our caller, and, and I hope that that does answer her question. I'd like to just get through... Um, one of these recent jury verdict decisions, uh, this involved a slip and fall uh, arising out of uh, a patient who had mental deficiencies. She fell in the, the parking lot of her building and it was owned by a property, property management company. Um, she suffered a disc herniation and aggravated some pre-existing conditions. She had to have some surgery. Um, she claimed that the injuries really prevented her from continuing on with her childcare obligations and whatnot. Uh, but the case settled in mediation for $450,000. So again, this just highlights the importance of making sure that you as a property owner, whether you're commercial or residential, we're going to talk next week a little bit about residential property ownership um, liability. And it'll be, uh, I, I think, kind of apropos because it'll be Halloween, and uh, I think everybody needs to know as a homeowner what your liability is with respect to people that you are inviting on your property to come and take candy from you. So I think we will talk about that next week and give you some insight into what you should be doing as a property owner to make sure that you're protected in the event that somebody gets injured on your property. Um, so that'll be next week. So I encourage you to, to listen next week where we talk about that. Uh, one other case I want to mention, this is a, a motor vehicle case that occurred in uh, New Jersey, and the driver of the vehicle was hit at an intersection by another driver. She suffered a meniscal tear, which is a tear in the knee, and uh, cervical disc, disc herniations, and that case settled for $100,000. And if you remember, I talked a little bit earlier about insurance policy limits, and that most insurance policies, while you can get lesser uh, policies, most are 100. So this is interesting because this would suggest in this case that the victim, the plaintiff, received the full amount of the 
other driver's insurance policy, the $100,000. Uh, finally, I want to just mention to you this year's uh, Jersey Cares Co-Drive. This is the 18th annual Co-Drive. And we, again, are going to be a collection and donation site. So you can drop off your coats, men, women's, children's coats, to our office. And we will be uh, partnering with Jersey Cares to make sure that um, the coats are distributed properly to needy people in New Jersey. It's a very, very worthwhile cause. Your donations go directly to people who are in need of coats. Uh, I like to see this sort of, of um, direct interaction between those people donating and then the recipients because unlike just donating money to an organization and you just have to hope that money goes in the right direction, this is really a beautiful thing because you're directly impacting the lives of other people. You're giving them a coat. You're giving their children a coat that keep them warm this winter. And every time they put that coat on, they're going to remember your generosity and how, you know, without you, they'd be freezing cold this winter. So this is um, – something that we're very passionate about and I encourage you to call with any questions concerning the drop-off or the times. We're going to be posting things on our Facebook pages and uh, Twitter and on the website. If you want to learn more information about Jersey Cares in general and their annual co-drive, you can go to www.jerseycares.org and search for the annual events and you will find the co-drive there. In the next few weeks, Jersey Cares will be putting up a list of uh, businesses and uh, partners like ours who will be accepting donations. So stay tuned for that. Well, I'd like to thank you for joining me this week. We'll be back next week with more legal and business news. Uh, if you have any questions or if you want to discuss a legal issue or if you have um, ideas or topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the air, give me a call at 973-949-3770, or you can email me directly at info, I-N-F-O, at Peter Lamont, that's P-E-T-E-R-L-A-M-O-N-T-E-S-Q.com. Until next time, I'd like to thank you for joining us, and remember that there's power in understanding the law. With 25% off all new and up to 70% off previously leased furnishings, do you really need a better reason to party? We don't think so. Come visit our new Court Furniture Clearance Center with more than 9,000 square feet of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home and office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. Free food, prizes, and fun all weekend long at our Chandelier Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com.